right, go ahead and uh, grab your Bibles and open them to Psalm 1. Um, last week I mentioned that we would be taking a break from John through the summer um, and that we would be spending summer in the Psalms. And um, Sunday night in the members meeting I shared with our members that um, we're going to take a, an interesting approach to how we're going to approach the Psalms um, moving through the summer and then even into the future. And, and that approach is this. Um, originally, my thought was, let's pick some popular psalms through the summer and hit those highlights. Um, and then me and um, David Alderman were having a discussion one day, and basically we just kind of landed on the conclusion of, like, how cool would it be to, to just start in Psalm 1 and just go and through the end of the summer, and then next summer we pick up where we left off and... 12 to 15 years down the road after we finish, how awesome of a journey that would be. And so that's what we're going to do. Uh, we'll spend the entire summer in the Psalms, and then next summer we'll be in the Psalms, and the next summer we'll be in the Psalms, and then the next summer we'll be in the Psalms until we finish. Um, and I'm, I'm not telling you when that'll be, because I don't know when that'll be. Um, there are 150 Psalms, some of them short, some of them extremely long. It may take us a whole summer to go through Psalm 119. I don't know, um, but we'll see. Um, but this is a, a wonderful opportunity for us to work through this powerhouse book um, to be able to see the many different themes and, and the different challenges of the Scripture. But this morning, as we begin our journey through the Psalms this summer, we're going to start in Psalm 1. If you will, let's stand. I'm going to read Psalm 1. I'm going to pray for us, and then we will begin our journey together. And I want you to think. I want you to think about this very moment. That way, in 12 to 15 years when we finish, I want you to remember this very day, this very moment. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Father, as we begin this journey together, we ask that you would speak clearly to us, that our hearts would be prepared to receive your word, And that our hearts and our souls would be encouraged as we work through the Psalms together over the next many years. These endeavors seem vast, but what joy they do for our souls as we work through them. Father, I can't Wait to see what you do. 
And I pray this morning as we work through this first psalm together that you would be working and molding our hearts to live for your glory on your mission. That we would be prepared to be the people you've called us to be. That you would nurture our faith and propel us forward to live by your grace and for your glory. God, we ask that you would bless the reading of your word this morning. That it would prove to be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. That we would hide it in our hearts so we might not sin against you. That we would realize that your love never fails. It endures forever. May we cherish your word and live greatly for you, our wonderful King and Savior, Jesus. Amen. You can go ahead and be seated. Psalm 1 is um, kind of known by theologians or put forward by theologians as the gateway to the Psalms uh, because it covers two major categories, primarily two only categories of people. In fact, some actually pair Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 together as kind of an introduction, but the danger with doing that is that we miss. How many of you actually read the introduction of a book? I guess the better question is how many of you read a book? If you are to read a book, do you read the introduction? Some people do, some people don't. Sometimes it depends on the book. Sometimes it depends on how long the introduction is. For me, if I open it up and I see the introduction is 30 pages, I'm probably skipping it. Because why would it be 30 pages? You know, I mean, there's, I mean, how much can you introduce in a book for 30 pages without giving away what the book's actually about? But with the Psalms, it's important to realize how critical Psalm 1 is. Because it doesn't just simply paint the pathway or the gateway into the Psalms. It's really a gateway into all of life. It's really a gateway into all of Scripture. Because it doesn't really matter where you are in life. You'll find that you're on one of two paths. You're either on the path of the righteous or you're on the path of the wicked. And that seems like two very big and bold extremes, but that's just the truth. I mean, a lot of us are probably say something like, I'm not necessarily going to say that I'm righteous, but man, I don't think I'm really on the wicked side either. But the reality is, is that's exactly where we are. We're in one of two places. There's not a middle ground when it comes to being found in the faith of Christ. And really, those two paths kind of boil down to two things. Being faithful to our God who has been faithful to us, who has given himself. And we have surrendered to him. We have given our lives to him, trusting him with everything that he would lead us, that he would guide us, that we would rest in him. Or 
We're faithless. We're not trusting in the work of Christ. We're not trusting in the leading of Christ. We're not following the way that he would have us to go. So the two paths are the path of the righteous or the path of the wicked. One being faithful, one being faithless. And here's the main idea for where we will be today in Psalm 1. The righteous trust God and live for him, but the wicked are faithless and live for themselves. So we start with the righteous. Again, verses 1 through 3. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. Blessed is the man. That term, blessed, is an interesting term to start the Psalms with because it's actually um, could be translated happy. But it's kind of happy to another level, happy to another degree. Happy is the man. Meaning that he is ultimately satisfied in the Lord. He's not satisfied with the things of the world. He doesn't find satisfaction in the things of the world. His ultimate satisfaction is in Jesus. Happy is the man. Blessed is the man. The Westminster Catechism says, what is the chief end of man? The very first point, what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. When we are... Truly glorying in all that he does, in all that he says, in all that he leads, in all that he guides, that's where we find joy. We want to seek after joy. We want to seek after happiness, but it can only be found in doing the work of God. Listen to the words of Charles Spurgeon. Everyone is seeking happiness. If that is true, then everyone should read this psalm. For it directs us where happiness is to be found in its highest degree and purest form. Happy implies a sort of plurality of happiness. Surely this is the highest to which the human heart can aspire. This happiness is attainable by the poor, the forgotten, and the obscure as by those whose names figure in history and are trumpeted by fame. It is not to the hermit or to the priest, but it comes to any man or woman who loves God and seeks to obey Him. His position has nothing to do with it. His character has everything to do with it. The happy man is described as one who avoids the way of wicked persons. The tragic folly and sin of the wicked is that they have neglected the chief thing to be remembered. Namely, that there is a God. That they are His creatures. And, being His creatures, ought to live for Him. They give God no part of their lives. And He is in none of their thoughts. The godly man, however, 
does not consider first how the world regards a thing, but how God looks at it. So ultimately, our satisfaction is in Jesus. And our satisfaction in Jesus is what keeps us from walking in the counsel of the wicked or standing in the way of sinners or sitting in the seat of scoffers. You notice the progression there. The blessed man avoids these paths. But when we don't avoid these paths, notice what happens. We begin to stand I mean, walk in the counsel of the wicked. So we begin to be surrounded by those who are not lovers of God. And then we begin to stand in their way. Not stand in their way to keep them from doing things, but we begin to associate ourselves with the way of sinners. Which leads us to be seating ourselves with them. Everything has its consequence. One little dab here leads to a big blip, a big blob here, and then you begin to slide, and before you know it, you're completely gone. One little slip could lead to a catastrophic fall. But blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. See, the world and its offers are tempting when we take our eyes off of Jesus. The blessed man is avoiding these things. He's not pursuing It's pretty clear that in our culture we pursue after these things rather than trying to avoid them. And then we try to justify why we are in those situations. And usually we try to use the mission of God as justification for it. But notice what the blessed man does. He avoids those things. Then he delights. So he's careful, he's vigilant to guard his life. Are you careful and vigilantly guarding your life? How? How do we watch? How do we take care? How do we guard our hearts from these things? Basically, we take inventory. We take inventory of what we're seeing of what we're pursuing, what we're doing, what we're watching, what we're hearing, what we're taking part in. Are those many things that encompass our everyday life, are they helping our walk with Christ or are they hindering our walk with Christ? If we say, oh, but I'm in this thing and it's a good thing, but it's constantly pulling me away from time spent with the Lord or it's constantly demanding my time be spent outside of fellowship with the saints and worship, then it's not helping our faith. It doesn't matter what kind of justification we put on it. If if it's not helping our walk, if it's hindering our walk, then it's leading us down a wrong path. 
We must be careful. I love the way that the Life Application Study Bible refers to these verses. It says this. There is simple wisdom in these verses. Simple wisdom. The more we delight in God's presence, the more fruitful we are. I'm going to stop there for just a second. How often do we pursue all of these other things saying that they're going to help us in the mission of God when they're actually deterring us from the mission of God? To be the most fruitful for the mission of God, to be the most fruitful for the things of God is to be satisfied in God first. If we're not satisfied in God, the rest of it is just justification for sin. It says, on the other hand, the more we allow those who ridicule God to affect our thoughts and attitudes, the more we separate ourselves from our source of nourishment. We must have contact with unbelievers if we are to witness to them. But we must not join or imitate their sinful behavior. If you want despair, notice, not joy. If you want despair, Spend time with mocking sinners. But if you want God's happiness, make friends with those who love God and His Word. So do you see the issue? We are to be people who are on mission. We are to be in the presence of those who are not people of God. But we can't start there. Because if we start there, we're running on empty and we're not going to make up any ground. We start with being satisfied in the Lord by cleaving to His Word, by surrounding ourselves with godly people and godly examples who fill our lives, who fill our souls so that we can then overflow unto the mission of God. The righteous delights in the law of the Lord and on His law He meditates day and night. Delight. See, the righteous cherishes God's word. We, we can't go many days without being in the word. Have you ever noticed how easy it is to become detached from God and his people? But how hard it is to get back into the emotion of being a part of it? I mean, why couldn't it be the other way around? That would make life so much better, wouldn't it? If we instead had the, the tendency to, to never be able to miss instead of the other way around. But it's just so easy to look down and be like, man, I haven't even read the Word in two weeks. And, and if we, we miss, then the more we miss, then we begin to slide down that slippery slope. But it says the blessed man, the happy man, delights in the law of the Lord. He delights in the law of the Lord. He cherishes the word of God. And not only does he cherish the word of God, but he gladly serves him. That means he's living for God's people, on God's mission, for God's glory. Delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. The thoughts of God are constantly before him. 
the happy man is filling his life. He's filling his mind with things that build up instead of tear down. Our world is full of things that try to tear our faith down. Our lives are full of those things. And if we're to be blessed in this manner or happy in this manner, we should be one who delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on it day and night. And notice the result when that happens. Verse 3 says that he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. A tree by a stream. You get this image of a tree planted by a never-ending source of water. Never having to water it. That's the kind of plant I can grow. I can't grow the other kind. But a tree that never needs to be watered because it's constantly being fed. And because it's constantly being fed, because it has this never ceasing source of nourishment, its roots begin to grow strong and deep. It becomes healthy, thriving. And what does a healthy tree do? It produces. It flourishes. The happy man, the righteous man, the blessed man is one who avoids the slippery slope of sin and wickedness. He delights in the law of the Lord. And he becomes like a tree planted by streams of water. And when the trials of life, when the problems of life try to come and thwart us or try to diminish the fruitfulness of that tree, it fails. Because the source of life is not coming from those things, but it's coming from the never-ending stream. The graciousness of God. And it produces. See, the righteous guards his life and his heart and he delights and he meditates on God's word. You want to know where your source of life comes from as a Christian? It comes from the word. You want to know where encouragement comes from for the Christian? It comes from the word. You want to know where your motivation to do life and mission comes from? It comes from the word. But the opposite of the righteous is the wicked. Verse 4 says, The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. It, isn't it interesting how you have three verses talking about the way of the righteous, and then you just have one talking about the way of the wicked? Just one little blip. The wicked is completely opposite of the righteous, he's not blessed or happy. And we, we've got the whole term blessed completely confused in our culture. He's not happy because he's not finding joy in Christ. His satisfaction comes from many other things other than God himself. He finds happiness elsewhere. 
simply seeking after momentary treasures. Not being satisfied in Christ, not being satisfied in the Word, but being momentarily satisfied by the empty things of this world. If your joy is not in Jesus, then it's in something else. See, the wicked doesn't do what the righteous does. The righteous avoids walking in the counsel of the wicked. He avoids standing in the way of sinners. He avoids sitting in the seat of scoffers. The wicked are completely opposite. They don't flee from the the deterrence of godliness. When something comes before us, we're like those, you know, like, well, Kentucky Derby was yesterday. What happens to a wild horse? They, they put blinders and hang a carrot to train them, so they just follow that, and that's just all they know. We're like wild horses with blinders and a carrot in front of us. We just quickly go after whatever we see in front of us, rather than asking God to God or trusting God to God. We see something glitter and we go after it. We see something shining, we want to cleave to it. Instead of resting in the eternal promises of God. And again, if, if our life is filled with things that are not helping us in the way of godliness, then those things are hindering us from being godly. And we're delighting in something other than Christ That's what the wicked does. He doesn't delight in the Lord's instruction. Because probably in his pride, he doesn't see the need to follow God. I got this. I've achieved this. I can do this. I've got this degree. I've got this. And I want these things. So all I need to do is work a little harder. And I'm going to have these things. Because those things are going to make me happy. To only get those things and realize they still don't make me happy. The wicked are not meditating on God's word. They're not reading the word of God. They're not being trusting of the word of God. They're not living for the glory of God. They're certainly, certainly not satisfied in God. So, it says that They are like chaff that the wind drives away. Chaff is the outer hull of grain. And the way that they would sift the chaff is they would take these bundles of grain, these basically handfuls of grain, and they would toss them in the air. And they were so light and they were so flaky that with the wind would blow, they would just simply blow the chaff off and the grain would fall back to the ground. The chaff is just this useless, substanceless hole on what actually matters. And as opposed to a tree that is planted by streams of water, who has deep, strong roots and who yields its fruit, who is producing, who does not wither, and he's constantly in production, the wicked are like chaff that simply blow away in the wind. The chaff has simply no substance. It's pretty much useless. 
All the things we strive for, all the things we long for, if they are not helping us to walk in a godly manner, leads us to be nothing more than chaff. See, the reality, folks, is is that we're created for a purpose. And that purpose is not to live for our own glory and seek after our own things. That purpose is to live for the glory of God. And it's pretty clear to see that that's our only purpose. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here. And I'm not saying in church. I'm saying alive. You didn't make yourself happen. God created us. And if God would go to the links of creating us, then he must be doing so with a purpose. Your purpose on this earth is not to live for you. That's why that statement that I said early that the end, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. See, if our purpose is to live for God, then God has also designed it that if we're living for him, then we're truly being satisfied in him. We're finding ultimate joy in him. But so often we go after all these other things that are just nothing more than chaff. We think they're going to make us happy. We think they're going to fill our soul. They're not going to leave us empty, but in fact, they leave us more than empty. Because we forget that we're created for a purpose. That's what Spurgeon referred to in the comment I read earlier. Again, he says, the tragic folly and sin of the wicked is that they have neglected the chief thing to be remembered. Namely, that there is a God and that they are his creatures and being his creatures ought to live for him. So they give God no part of their lives and he is in none of their thoughts. How many of our lives actually reflect that truth rather than a life lived for the glory of God? See, the truth is this. Now, without a Jesus-centered, a Christ-centered direction in your life, you will quickly drift as chaff in the wind. Two paths. The righteous, the wicked. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, says this in Matthew 7, 13 and 14. He says, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Every one of us in here is on one of these two paths. The way of the righteous or the way of the wicked. Yes, the the broad road is easy. And the narrow road is hard. But there's a great reward waiting at the end of that narrow road. Which road are we on? See, the way of the wicked is easier 
and brings momentary happiness. But its emptiness will be revealed and you're left with nothing. How many stories have we heard of people who want their families to have what they couldn't have? So they spend everything going to school and working and and climbing up the ladder, making as much money as possible and accumulating all these things only to realize at the end of their life, now that they're losing their families, they're losing their children, they're, they're losing everything, they're losing their happiness because those things can't provide the happiness that they were longing for. We think the more we can get, the more we can attain, the happier we'll be. not true true joy can only be found in a life surrendered to Jesus verses 5 and 6 therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Now he's not saying that the wicked are not going to stand in judgment as in, like, you avoid it. But he's saying you have no ground to stand on. I've heard a lot of people make the claim that they believe that, that there's a God and they believe that You know, there's going to be a day, but at the end of the day, their goods will outweigh their bads. Um, Wrong. Every one of us will stand before God. And it doesn't matter if you are daggum Mother Teresa. You could take all those things and you can put them before the face of God. And at the end of the day, if we don't know Him and have not trusted Him, then all of those things are rubbish. They're worthless. Why? Because we don't work our way to gain the affection of Jesus. We work because the affection of Jesus has already been given to us by himself. And if we continue to strive after all these shiny things, and we neglect our faith, and we neglect Christ, then what in the world kind of prideful world are we living in to where we think that we're going to stand before the holy God of the universe one day and he's going to say, don't worry about it. It's all right. I know you messed up, but it's all good. Come on in. That's not justice. And to deny that, to hold that claim, to say that that's how it's going to play out is to deny everything that we know about God. But every one of us will stand before him. And the only, only thing that we have or can have is a relationship with Jesus. Surrender to him. See, because we just read Matthew 7, right? See, because after that, He says this, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? 
So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? In other words, didn't we live for you with everything we had? And he would say, I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. Why? Because it's not about doing the works to receive salvation. No, it's about doing the work after we have received salvation. But unfortunately, many of us will claim that we're living a life of Christ and walk the path of the wicked. Again, True joy can only be found in a life that's surrendered to Jesus. And the reward for the righteous is great. It's a joy-filled life followed by eternity with the King of glory. But the wicked have zero ground to stand on in judgment. And here's the truth. And this is what a lot of us probably need to hear. That you can live for your glory now and spend eternity without Jesus. Or you can surrender to Jesus and live for his glory and spend eternity with him. Two paths. Your glory or his You can live for your glory and live it up and people will laud you and they will think that you are like this great and awesome human being and you've got all of these cool things. And then die and hear God say, I never knew you. Or, and I'm not saying it's bad to have things. I'm saying what's the heart behind it? Right? Or we can live for his glory and spend eternity with him. And I don't know if you've ever heard this or not, but the horrible nature of hell is not what we've made it out to be for so long that it's hot. That it smells like sulfur, that it's a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. What's horrible about hell is that Jesus is not there. And whether you realize it or not, whether you want to admit it or not, you receive the grace of Jesus every day of your life. Without God's movement, you're not breathing, you're not thinking, you're not doing anything. You don't have what you have, you don't lose what you lose. All of these things are common grace of God. But when we face 
judgment. And we're separated from God. Then we're separated from eternity. And that means separated. That's the horrible nature of hell. That Jesus is not there. So what path are you on? Again, at life's end, you and I will stand before the judge. We will. There's no avoiding that. Right? No avoiding it. It's kind of like jury duty. You're going to have to go to jury duty at some point in your life. There's no avoiding it. Now, you might get lucky and have some kind of medical condition or some way out or whatever, but you're going to get that letter in the mail one day, and for some reason, everybody hates to get that letter. But the truth is, is that every one of us will stand in judgment. And we're either going to be judged by our faith in Christ or the lack of our faith in Christ. It's not about our stuff. It's not about our achievements. It's not about anything. Except, what did we do with Jesus? Did we believe Him? Did we trust Him? Did we surrender to Him? And here's the thing. Because the temptation for a lot of us is to answer that question and be like, yeah, I love Jesus. Yeah, I'm surrendered to Jesus. But it's like that old saying, the proof is in the pudding. Like, we can fool each other. Like, we can play a lot of games and fool each other, right? But when it comes to that day, all out of games. Because we can't just say, yes, God, I live for you. Or we'll be like the story. But God, didn't I, didn't I, yeah, but I never knew you. Isn't it interesting that verse 1 starts with blessed is the man and ends with, but the way of the wicked will perish. What path are we on? Are we trusting in faith the work of Christ? Are we living in faith at the direction of Christ? Or is there a lack of faith because we think that we can handle it all on our own? And you might be good. You might be a hard worker. You might be smart. You might can achieve your goals. But at the end of the day, at the end of life, you know what you can't do? Save yourself. I mean, that's just the reality. The life of the righteous is one lived in faith by trusting the leading and goodness of the Lord. While the alternate path refuses to live in faith. Have you trusted in Jesus? And are you following him faithfully? Let's pray. Father, it is 
clear to us through your word that there is simply no middle ground. We either trust you and follow you or we don't. And God, it's our prayer that you make it clear to us which path we're on. Sooner rather than later. So we pray, Father, that you would bring conviction to our lives where we need conviction. And that you will bring us peace to our lives where we need peace. For your glory and for your name. God, let us not continue to live under the false assumptions of salvation because we're doing some good stuff. But instead, let us come face to face with the reality of eternity. Do we want the fleeting pleasures of this world or do we want the eternal pleasures of Christ? Be known by Him. Do we truly love you enough to trust you? So let our words not be empty. Let our confessions be pure. Let us realize we're either for you or we're against you. That we're either satisfied in you or we're satisfied in other things. And let us quit justifying our answers. And just call it as it is. God, because our souls are at stake. Eternity is at stake. Your glory is at stake. So we ask you to move in us, through us, by your grace, for your glory, and for our joy.